Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick, with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss the intersection between neuroscience and game theory, ask whether you are smarter than a chimpanzee, examine how simple mental judgments can be massively wrong, explain the basics of game theory, and dig deep into strategic thinking with Dr. Colin Kammerer. We have another lucky winner this week. Kate Squires from California, congratulations. You've won $100 in our latest $100 Amazon gift card giveaway. If you want to win $100, enter into our next giveaway. We give away a $100 Amazon gift card every single month on the podcast. All you have to do to be entered to win is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. We give away a $100 Amazon gift card every single month because the science of success keeps exploding in growth. We have more than 500,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries. We hit number one new and noteworthy and much more. Lastly, if you want 10, yes, 10 extra entries into the giveaway, all you have to do is leave a positive review on iTunes and email me a screenshot of that review to matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. And our lucky winner this week, Kate Squires, is one of the people that sent in a screenshot of her review. So those 10 extra entries definitely pay off and you should definitely do that. 
In our previous episode, we discussed how to escape the feedback loop from hell, the paradoxical idea of embracing negative experiences, why struggle creates meaning, how to discover the false values underpinning your worldview, and how to cultivate the ability to sustain and handle adversity with Mark Manson. If you've been struggling with something in your life and can't quite figure it out, listen to that episode. Today, we have another incredible guest on the show, Dr. Colin Kammerer. Colin is the Robert Kirby Professor of Behavioral Finance and Economics at the California Institute of Technology. A former child prodigy, he received his BA in quantitative studies from Johns Hopkins University at the age of 17, followed by an MBA in finance from the University of Chicago at the age of 19, and finally a PhD in behavioral decision theory from the University of Chicago at the age of 21. His research is focused on the interactions between cognitive psychology and economics. Colin, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks for having me, Matt. Well, we're very excited to have you on here. Obviously, you have a fascinating background. I'd love to uh, to hear the story of kind of how you got started. Uh, okay, so one of the early experiences actually was when I was 12, I started to go to horse races sometimes with my dad and a friend of his who was interested in the stock market. And uh, I was fascinated by the fact that, you know, 12 horses come out on a racetrack and they all look pretty physically fit, and you could buy a big newspaper called the Daily Racing Forum that tells you all about uh, the facts about you know which which horses had run before and who was the trainer and what was their the sire and the dam that's the mom and the dad and how well had they done, and somehow these markets were able to compress all this information into a number, which was the odds. So I was really interested in how that process worked, and when I went to college, I studied math and physics and psychology, and I was kind of searching around for a science that I thought had, you know, some mathematical structure and some real scientific rigor, but was about people. So I ended up studying economics. Then I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago to get a PhD. And at that time, the popular view about financial markets was that you can't beat the market because if there's any information that's easy to find about the earnings of a company or what the CEO was up to, um, people are highly motivated to find that and they'll get it and they'll buy and sell and move the price around until um, the prices are such that there's no way to easily beat the market based on something that's easy to find out. That's called the efficient markets hypothesis. And I was kind of skeptical about that because, well, first, a lot of people invest their funds either themselves or with hedge funds and act, what's called active management, people who are trying to beat the market. And people are quite happy uh, to pay 1% or 2% of their uh, money in what's called um, you know fairly high fees. So a lot of investors think somebody can beat the market, which the efficient markets hypothesis says shouldn't be the case. So I was kind of looking around for something different. And at that time, there were a couple of psychologists called Hilly Einhorn and Robin Hogarth. And they were at the beginning of a wave of people who were interested in human judgment and decision-making. And their approach was very related to what Tversky and Kahneman uh, later began to study, which was called heuristics and biases. And the idea was maybe instead of making extremely complicated calculations and using all the information and weighing it just perfectly, people instead use kind of simple shortcuts like what springs to mind in memory or what's visually in front of them on a computer screen. And so that was the, the beginning of what came to be later called behavioral economics. So I got my PhD and I was one of the, the first people to really you know, get a PhD in this field of, of decision theory or um, decision economics. And then I went to, um, ended up at the Wharton School, where I happen to be today. I mean, I mean right now, as we're talking, not um, as a faculty member. 
And they actually were very encouraging about the idea of, of trying to study the psychology, essentially the limits on how much information people can process effectively and how much willpower people have and also how selfish people are, how much they care about others. And, and none of those things were really incorporated into economic theory at that time. So that was the beginning of what we call behavioral economics or kind of psychologizing economic theory. That was around uh, the mid-1980s. And so um, I was interested in a bunch of studies involving psychological shortcuts and um, and you know how they might make a difference in what people do. So one of the things we studied is called framing effects, which means you know you could describe something in two different ways, and even though they're mathematically equivalent, it might either evoke different emotions or it might change people's focus of attention so they treat them differently. For example, the FDA I think at one point required salad dressings to label how much fat content they had in terms of percentages, not just on the back. And so suddenly you pick up, you know, a salad dressing and it would say 6% fat or 8% fat or 3% fat. And, you know, that's quite different than if you said 6% fat is a lot different than 94% fat free. You know, 94% fat free sounds pretty great. 6% fat sounds like, ooh, yuck. So even though those two are mathematically equivalent statements, you know, that not 6 and 94% adds up to 100%, they seem to shift people's focus of attention and actually affect uh, choices. So those are the kind of things we began to study in behavioral economics. That's really fascinating. And I know that you specifically focus a lot on the ideas around game theory, which to some listeners may seem sort of like an esoteric field of knowledge that doesn't apply to their daily life. But I'm curious, uh, could you kind of explain some of the basics of game theory and how it could actually apply to interactions that people have every day? Sure. So um, game theory is a really powerful mathematical system. It's probably most developed in economics, but also a little bit in theoretical biology and political science. And so a game, despite the kind of frivolous name, a game is a mathematical object, which is a set of players. Each player is going to choose a strategy and given some information they have about, say, what's going to happen in the future or maybe what the other player thinks or, uh, you know, how valuable something is if, if they're bargaining. The players have strategies and information. When they all choose their strategies, there are going to be outcomes. The outcomes are uh, it could be um, biological fitness, like, like reproduction. It could be territory in a war. It could be profits for companies. It could be uh, status for people, you know, for animals fighting for territory. And then we assume that the, the only mathematics really comes in because we assume that the, the players can mathematically sort of rank how much they like different outcomes. And that whole system is called a specification of a game. And what game theory is, is to say, if the players have these strategies that yield outcomes which they value numerically, what are they going to actually do? And the interesting thing is whether to what extent players can kind of figure out what other players are likely to do by kind of outguessing. And I should add that the, the players could be animals that have strategies which, they're kind, which are kind of innate you know, strategies, like degrees of aggression. They could be much more deliberative. It could be how much um, a telecom company wants to bid for a slice of phone spectrum that's being auctioned off by the FCC. That was an actual thing that happened not only in the U.S., the FCC, but in many countries where, where um, valuable phone spectrum was auctioned off and you know, tens of billions of dollars were actually bet. So the, you know, the companies that had to decide, what do I actually bid, you know, employed a bunch of game theorists to kind of tell them, uh, you know, given the rules of the game, you know, should I bid this much or that much? And what do you think other people bid? I don't want to outbid them by too much and leave money on the table, but I don't want to get outbid and underbid and lose. And so those are the kinds of things game theory is used to study. 
what I what I brought to the analysis was the standard idea in game theory is that I should say that the standard mathematical thing that's computed and that's taught in every course, and this is you know kind of the homework on the final exam, is what's called a Nash equilibrium, named after John Nash. And equilibrium is a word that's kind of taken from physics as sort of a resting point. The idea is in equilibrium, every player has a belief of what the other players will do, and their beliefs are correct. So they've somehow figured out what other players will do. And in addition, they're going to choose a best response. They pick the strategy, which is the best one, given this belief. So one way to think of an equilibrium is, you know, suppose you played tic-tac-toe lots and lots and lots of times. And if you ever made a mistake, you corrected your mistake the next time. After lots of play, everyone would know the strategies of the other players, and they would be choosing the best strategy for themselves. And it would be actually kind of a boring game, but, the, but mathematically it would be, have a nice, precise structure. So what we started to look at was non-equilibrium or kind of pre-equilibrium game theory, meaning what if people haven't figured everything out yet? Uh, you know, what kind of things could happen then? So I'll give you a, a simple example that's not too hard to think about numerically, which we call the, a beauty contest game. I'll, and let me explain it first, and then I'll say where that name comes from. So in this game, which we've actually done in lots of experiments for money, everybody picks a number from 0 to 100. And we're going to collect the numbers on a piece of paper, or you're going to type them in a computer, or you're going to send them on a postcard to the Financial Times, who actually did this a few years ago. And we're going to collect all the numbers, 0 to 100. We're going to com compute the average number and take two-thirds of the average. And whoever is close to the two-thirds of the average is going to win a fixed prize. So everyone wants to be a little bit below average, knowing that everyone else wants to be a little bit below average. And if you figure out the mathematical equilibrium, this is the kind of thing that would be on a final exam and a course, the equilibrium is the, the number which is the only number which everyone, if they believed everyone else would pick it, they'd be best responding and their beliefs would all be correct. And that's zero. But when you actually do the experiment, what happens is you get a bunch of people who pick numbers anywhere from zero to 100, 60, 40, you know, let's say it averages around 50. There are a number of other people who seem to think, I don't know what people pick. It could be anywhere. So let's say they'll pick 50. So I'll pick 33, which is two-thirds of 50. So if you're trying to, if you think others are going to randomly choose in the interval of numbers and you're trying to match two-thirds of the average, you'll pick 33. Other people do what we call a second level of, of thinking. This is something called level K model of behavior. They'll say, well, I think other people will think other people will pick 50 and those people will pick 33 and I'm going to outguess them and pick 22. And you could do a couple more steps of thinking, but at some point, you know, you're being, as the British say, too clever by half, right? So if you actually play this game and you pick two-thirds of 22 or two-thirds of two-thirds of 22, you're actually picking a number that's too low because you don't want to pick the lowest number. You want to pick two-thirds of the average number. And so typically what you see is an average number around 33 or 22, which is a lot far away from the Nash equilibrium prediction, which is that everyone will somehow figure out how to pick zero. So that's an example of where the psychological limits on strategic thinking, you know, gives you a better prediction of what people actually do. And by the way, as you can imagine, if you play this game again and again, what happens is, you know, the, the first time you play in a group, it might be the average is 28 and two thirds of that is about 19. And so the winner is uh, Matt Bodnar who picked 19 and everyone hears that. And next time they think, wow, people are going to, I should pick maybe two thirds of 19. Or maybe I should think other people will pick two of those 19. And so if you do it over and over, you do get 
numbers that are moving in the direction of the initial Nash equilibrium prediction. So the idea of an equilibrium is actually a, often a good model for where a system in which there's a lot of feedback and learning from trial and error is going to kind of move over time. But it isn't necessarily a good prediction of what happened the first time you play, even if it's for very high stakes. Uh, and, this, and these games have often been done with different groups of people. You know, with, it doesn't seem to be make that much difference if you, you know, really good at math or if you played chess a lot or anything like that. There's, most people will pick, you know, numbers somewhere between, say, 10 or 15 or 22 or 33 the first time they play. And so we've developed a theory of that type of thinking called level K reasoning, which has these kind of steps of thinking. And, and the, the main idea is that the steps don't get that far. There's a little bit of strategic thinking, but it's limited. So that makes me think of a couple things. One is when I initially heard the uh, the beauty contest game, or I guess I, I also kind of coined it in my mind, the zero to 100 game. Uh, I, I, I was too clever by half because my initial guess was the number one, um, which as you sort of showed in some of your research, that was a, a terrible guess because people don't adjust close enough to the equilibrium to make that meaningful. And the other thing is, is it was a sad day. And I think it was like seventh grade for me or whenever, when me and my buddy discovered that there's only like three or four moves in tic-tac-toe and basically every single game should end in cats. Yes. One thing that's interesting is some of the games that are actually really fun to play, like rock, paper, scissors, which is um, similar to tic-tac-toe. It's a simple game and you can kind of figure it out, you know, from the point of view of mathematical analysis are kind of boring, but they're not that boring to actually play. And probably it's because people aren't always in equilibrium and they're kind of trying to chase, you know, patterns and see things that other players are doing. So if you were to say design video games or a game show on TV, it's not clear that equilibrium game theory would be as helpful as something that would incorporate more, you know, more of a concept of human nature and sort of fallibility and what's fun and engaging. So I'm curious, actually, that, that makes me think of another question. Rock, paper, scissors. Is that a game from sort of a game theory standpoint that has an equilibrium? Yeah. So actually, one reason the concept of equilibrium is very powerful, and John Nash um, shared the Nobel Prize for this discovery, is you can show mathematically that if a game is finite, in other words, there's not infinitely many people bidding or playing, and they only have so many strategies they can choose, like rock, paper, scissors, or so many numerical you know, bids in an auction, even if it's billions, as long as it's not infinity, that there always exists an equilibrium. And in rock, paper, scissors, the equilibrium involves what we call a mixed strategies. That means that if you play rock every single time, that's not a best response because someone will figure out and beat you with paper to cover rock. And so the, the only equilibrium is the one in which people choose rock, paper, and scissors about a third and third and third of the time. Uh, but again, when people play, what happens is usually people won't play explicitly in that random way, although you could, which wouldn't be very interesting. And then what happens is people try to pick out patterns in, you know, can I kind of predict what you're going to do next time? And associated with this is the fact that Roughly speaking, when you when you ask people to randomize, like if I tell you, imagine flipping a coin a hundred times in a row, you know, imagine write down a series of what you think a hundred coin flips might look like. People are actually not that good at generating a truly random sequence. The, the main thing is they kind of over alternate. So if you wrote down head, 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 then you'd write down tails, and you would actually have too few runs. So you'd have you know strings of a couple heads and a couple tails. And in a, in a truly random sequence of 100, you should have about 50 runs. And usually people produce about maybe 65 runs. So in my, in my cognitive psych class, I used to do this. And I'd ask half the people to actually, I'd turn around 
I'd ask half of them to actually flip a coin and half of them to simulate, imagine doing it. And then I would, you know, ask them to hand in their index cards and I could see if I could tell them whether it was human generated or truly random. So people aren't typically, unless there's special training or maybe special tools, aren't that great at kind of randomization. Uh, let me backtrack to one other thing about game theory. So another practical application that we studied that everyone I think can um, resonate or appreciate involves what's called a private information game. And so private information is a, a wrinkle which you don't have in rock, paper, scissors, and you don't have it in the, the zero to 100 game, which is that one person knows something the other people don't know, but everyone knows that there's private information. So for example, the kind of game we studied and here we go away from the simple, clear games in the lab to the messy world, involved um, movies. And the idea is we assume that the people who produced a movie and have watched it and have seen the entire movie, not just a short trailer, let's say, in an ad or a short clip that you might show on a TV show for promotion, that they have a better idea of the quality than moviegoers. So if people have seen it, they can say, this is you know on a zero to 100 scale, this is going to be at 82 or 41. And what we studied was we called cold opening, which means from about 2000 to 2009, we looked at all movies in the U.S. that were opened on a lot of screens, which is 300 or more screens. So that didn't include some smaller, you know, kind of independent films. But most of the movies are in our sample. And about 10 percent of the time, the movies were not shown to movie critics in time for them to write a review in the early part of our sample in 2000s, this was like in a newspaper in the New York Times or the LA Times or the Chicago Tribune. Uh, nowadays, the newspapers have become a lot less influential because, you know, trailers leak and uh, Rotten Tomatoes and lots of other websites, you know, are influential in sharing their opinions about what movies are good. But d during the part of our sample, the newspapers were kind of a big deal. And so about 10% of the time, the movies that were not shown to critics so that there was a review. And the way you can tell is if you open up the Friday newspaper, again, this is kind of historical big game theory. If you open up the Friday newspaper uh, in uh, Los Angeles, you would see an ad for, say, Undine, which was a Colin Farrell movie, and it would have a bunch of blurbs that would say, you know, marvelous, four stars from uh, Manola Dargis, Nelly Meekly, for example. And so the way those stars got there was that uh, a, a version of the movie was sent to the critics a couple days early, and they would prepare the reviews, and then they would give it to the studio so they could put it in the print ads on Friday. So in the Friday paper, you'd see a print ad that had a, if it was if it was flattering, that had a quote from a critic, and then in the same section of the newspaper, you'd see the critics' review that would say, "I love this movie on date." Meanwhile, the movie Killers with Catherine Hagel and Ashton Kutcher was not shown to critics in time. And so if you open up the print ad, there's a picture of the two stars, Killers, the name of the director, and it has no quotes from critics at all because critics weren't allowed to see it. And of course, the, the obvious intuition is that critics are going to tell everyone how terrible the movie is and then people won't go see it. But game theoretically, that's actually a little bit surprising because moviegoers should be able to infer if there's no review, it's probably because it's really bad and they didn't give it to the critics. So in this case, no news is bad news. If you don't see a review, it's probably because when the reviews eventually come in, usually re movies are reviewed later, like on a Monday or a Sunday, uh, they're going to be pretty bad. In fact, uh, empirically, that's what happens. So we collected data from Metacritic. Metacritic is a great website, by the way, which averages um, from about 5 to 20 or 30 different critical reviews 
and you get a beautiful little Gaussian normally distributed distribution where, you know, most movies are around a 50 on their zero to 100 scale. And if the movies are a 20 or below or 25 or below, which included the um, Ashton Kutcher and Catherine Hagel movie, then the chance of not sending show it to critics is much higher. So if you don't see a critic review and you kind of knew about the statistics that we had gathered, you should say to yourself, a lack of review is, is the same as a bad review, basically. But we took our theory of level K thinking, and the level K theory says some moviegoers are just kind of naive. Those are like the people who pick 50 in the 0 to 100 game. They're just not thinking strategically, well, wait a minute, what are other people going to pick? Because I should be responding to them. And so the naive moviegoers say, oh, I didn't see any movie review. That doesn't mean anything. It's probably kind of average. And actually, it's not average. If there's no review, it's statistically, it's below average. But the way we could tell that the moviegoers were being naive was if you write down some very fancy math and look at the statistics, the prediction is that the movies that aren't shown to critics will earn about 10 or 15% or more than they really should, given their actual quality. Because people are, are naively guessing the quality is much better than it is, and too many people will kind of go to those movies. And so we looked at all the data and did a very careful statistical analysis, and it turned out to be um, consistent with this theory that there's some degree of moviegoer naivete. And the result is if you make a bad movie, don't show it to critics, and your movie will make about 10 or 15% more than it really should uh, because you're kind of fooling some of the people some of the time. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's fascinating. I'd love to dig in a little bit more. Uh, explain or kind of tell me more about the concept of level K thinking or the level K model of behavior. The basic idea is we're going to assume that whether it's IQ or practice playing games or how motivated people are by an experiment or by figuring out you know, what the movie critics are doing, that it looks like we can kind of sort people into people who are not very strategic. Those are what we call level zero. And that means that uh, we think probably what's going on is that they're picking sort of a salient 
simple strategy. Maybe something just picks, just pops out, or they're exhibiting naivete. Like the moviegoers, um, they open the, the ad or they see an ad on TV, and the ad doesn't have any critic information, and they kind of don't notice that there's no critic information. So they assume that no critic information is kind of like average. And then level one players are players who think that other people are level zero. So in the zero of the hundred game that we talked about earlier, those are people who think, I think other people have no real clue. They're going to pick numbers around 50, like lucky numbers or, you know, number their, their birthdays or something like that. And I'm going to pick two thirds of that. So these players are being a little more clever because they, they have a concept of what others will do. And then they're responding to it. So these would be something like a moviegoer that says, um, Gee, you know, if if the if the studio is smart, then they're not uh, they're not going to show the worst movies to critics. But I can't tell beyond that, you know, how smart they are or how bad the movies are. And level two players think that they're playing level one players, so they're going to pick twenty two as a response to thirty three, and so on and so on. And so you can write down a, a, a kind of sequence of these types of players. The z- the zeros choose something that's kind of focal or random. The ones think they're playing zeros and they respond. The twos think they're playing ones and they respond. And with you know with with just a couple of steps, usually zero and one and two is is the only really levels you need. Although conceptually, in principle, people could be doing three steps or four steps, and you might get that sometimes, like in a very complicated novel or like a, a spy novel, where I think that he thinks that she thinks, and there's double agents and things. But usually, mentally, it's kind of overwhelming. It sort of boggles the mind to think more than two or three steps of reasoning. And we've applied this type of framework to movies. Um, it's also been used to analyze some managerial decisions, like when managers will adopt a new technology. It depends on how many managers, other managers they think will adopt and how many managers managers think and so on. And we've also used it to explain a lot of different um, experiments we've run in the lab where the, the games are much simpler. So you can often kind of see, in fact, literally we can see, say, if you put different numbers on a screen, which correspond to payoffs from choosing different strategies, if you're a level zero player, you'll look at certain numbers and ignore some numbers. If you're a level one player, you'll look at what the other players' payoffs are. If you're a level two player, you look at everything. And so the more levels of thinking you do, we can tie that directly to what you look at on the computer screen. And we use a measurement technique called eye tracking, which is basically a tiny camera that looks at your eye. And if your eye moves a little bit, like to look at the left part of the screen instead of the right part of your computer screen, the camera is sense enough to see where you're looking. It can kind of locate where your eye is looking on a computer screen to within the precision of about maybe a quarter, uh, you know, like a coin, a quarter coin. And so if we put the payoffs on the screen in a certain way, we can detect to some extent, not perfectly, but we can we can roughly detect who's doing, say, two steps of thinking because there's certain information they like they like to look at in order to figure out what to do. And so a combination of eye tracking and then lots of different experiments have given us an idea of, uh, and, and basically I should add, we typically we estimate for, say, college-educated student populations that, you know, something like 10 or 20% of people are level zero. They're just not really thinking through at all. Maybe 40% are level one. That's the most common. And maybe 30% are level two. And sometimes you'll see, you know, what looks like much higher level thinking, level three or level four. So the first thing that makes me think of is poker. And, and longtime listeners will know that I'm a big poker player. And we've, we've previously had some guests on here talk about some of the psychological elements of that game. 
Um, but you know, poker is a great example of a game where you, depending on sort of what level of thought your opponent is at, you have to adjust your thinking and sort of play one level ahead of them. But if you play two or three levels ahead of them, you can, it can end up backfiring and being kind of the same thing as picking one in the zero to 100 game. Every so often, I think we should try to get a grant and study poker or just study it because it's a, from a game theoretic point of view, it actually hasn't been studied very much, although early in the history of game theory, some of your listeners will know that the seminal book on game theory by von Norman and Morgenstern in the 1940s. I mean, it's, it's somewhat rare in social science, you know, that somebody writes a book and really kind of creates a whole field, but their book really did. There was some earlier research that they built on, but their book really made a big splash. And they actually have a chapter on poker, but it's, it's in a super simplified version in which you basically get a high card or a low card, and there's kind of one round of betting. So they, they picked a simple enough example that you could kind of fully analyze and see what's happening. But, of course, what makes you know, real poker so interesting is that, you know, there's some mathematics. So you got to kind of figure out, you know, how strong your hand is. But it also depends upon, as you, as you said, on what strategy you think the other player is going to play. Are they going to play tight and only bet when they have great cards? Are they going to bluff more? Um, and a, a, people who play poker a lot often talk about building kind of a model of the opponent, you know, it, which is essentially a kind of a level, you know, <laughs> what level is this person playing? And as you also astutely pointed out, much like in the, in the two-thirds of the average game, if you kind of overplay your opponent as if they're really, for example, if you think they won't fall for a bluff, you may not bluff enough. And so you're kind of leaving money on the table. And it's also a cool game from a psychological point of view, because if you play face to face, you know, you may have all kinds of, you know, information conveyed by facial expressions, which is something really that neuroscientists have studied for a long time, including with animals. And of course, there's, you know, the idea of a poker face, which is related to what we call emotional regulation. You know, you have really great cards and you don't want to show that in your face or you have terrible cards. You don't want to show that in your face. Uh, And the concept of tells, you know, that in other words, people, only a certain amount of emotions can be well regulated by us. Right. So unless you're a sociopath or a fantastic actor, it may be hard to control your emotions fully. So somebody who's really can figure out what your tell is when you have terrific cards over hours and hours of watching, you might be able to essentially infer your hidden information, what we call private information in game theory, from what's on your face or from your fingers tapping or brushing your hair and so forth. Uh, well, I personally definitely would advocate um, you studying poker. I think that'd be fascinating, and I'd love to to dig into that research at some point. Usually, you know, and especially in places like Caltech, we have a lot of freedom to study what we're interested in. And the nice thing about poker is I don't think we'd have any trouble getting volunteer subjects to play. And, of course, there's there's lots of online data. You know, there's, it's, there's no shortage of of interest in and ways in which you could dig into poker as a, as a neuroscientific, psychological kind of test bed. Um, and, of course, a lot, probably a lot of the basic processes are, you know, like bluffing or mind reading or face reading, you know, happen in other kinds of things like bargaining and, you know, other things that are important in political science and economics and, you know, everyday life. I'm curious, going back a little bit to the to the level K model of behavior, why do you think people get stuck in in sort of level one or level two of strategic thinking? Um, well, one variable um, that doesn't predict perfectly, but it is correlated. The correlations are around it's like 0.3 or 0.4, where zero is no correlation at all and plus one is perfect. And in these kind of social science type data, we rarely get plus one. So 0.3 or 0.4 is not too bad. And anyway, a variable that's correlated 
about 0.3 or 0.4 with steps of reasoning is working memory. And so working memory is basically, you know, I, um, I read you a list of digits, four, three, four, six, one. And then you have to quickly remember how long the list was and get the digits correct in order. And so some people can remember five or six digits. That would be a pretty short working memory span. Some people can remember eight or nine. And working memory, like how many things can you kind of keep track of, turns out to be a pretty good, solid, you know, but modest correlate of lots of types of intelligence and ability to, to be cognitively flexible. And also the number of... Um, steps of reasoning you do. So people with more working memory um, tend to be more likely to, to make choices that are consistent with level two reasoning. So if I, you know, if I looked at the zero to the hundred game and I looked at people picking around 50 and around 33 and around 22 or lower, or someone like you picking one, which is, which is a good guess if you're playing highly sophisticated people, but not for the first time, you would get a, a you probably would get, you know, kind of a, a nice correlation a modest but a positive correlation between the number of things people can keep in mind, like numbers, and then how many steps of thinking they do when they're when they're um, thinking about about games. Changing gears a little bit, um, I'm curious. One of the things you've talked about, and, and you may have touched on this earlier, is the idea of the theory of mind circuit. Can you extrapolate on that a little bit? Sure. So um, this is an idea that actually came from uh, originally from animal research. Starting in 1978, there was some beautiful but very early studies with chimpanzees. And um, the primatologists called Premack and Woodruff and um, others were interested in whether chimpanzees have an idea that another animal could think be thinking about something differently than, than they are. And so shortly after that, some philosophers actually suggested a really clever test for theory of mind, which, which is called the false belief test. And the idea is... Uh, often it's done with children with a kind of storyboard or you could make a little video, but I think I can, hopefully I can describe it well enough that people can get the idea or they can Google and learn more. And the false belief test is the following. So you see a little cartoon storyboard. Uh, Sally Ann goes into the kitchen and takes a cookie out of a cookie jar. Okay. Um, she leaves. Her mom comes in and takes the cookies out of the cookie jar for some reason. Maybe they're melting because it's hot like it is now in Philadelphia. And she puts the cookies in the refrigerator closes the cookie jar lid. And of course, Sally Ann doesn't see that because she went outside. The mom leaves, Sally Ann comes back. The question is, where does she look for the cookies? And so if you follow the storyboard, you know the cookies are in the refrigerator. But if you have theory of mind, you have the capacity to know that Sally Ann thinks the cookies are in the cookie jar because you saw something, the cookies being moved from cookie jar to refrigerator, that you know she didn't see. And it turns out when children are two or three, they will typically say, oh, she'll look in the refrigerator. And the reason is the kids know something, which is where the cookies are, and they can't, in a way, they can't imagine that somebody else doesn't know it. So they think the cookies are in the refrigerator. Sally Ann must know their cookies in the refrigerator. So they're, they're not able to, to maintain a concept of something being true where the cookies are and somebody else having a false belief. And when, as the kids get older, typically around five years old, and this is a very solid finding from many different cultures, and it doesn't seem to matter whether the kids are illiterate or it's a developing country. There's been um, studies in several different continents, including Africa and Australia, and that around five years of age, the kids realize, oh, oh, you know, I know the cookies in the refrigerator, but Sally Ann thinks they're in the cookie jar. And so that's the correct answer. So um, 
this test and a number of other ones have shown that there seems to be a, a somewhat distinct mental circuit called a mentalizing or theory of mind circuit. Uh, it involves dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, which is sort of uh, right in the center of your forehead, maybe an inch or two above your eyebrows, um, temporal parietal junction, which is kind of back in the temple, and um, areas in uh, what's called the medial temporal lobe, and um, also uh, regions of um, cingulate cortex, which is a kind of part in the center of the brain. And so it, an, another way to study mentalizing, which is shifting to the neuroscience, is some colleagues of mine have developed what they call the why-how test. And so if you might show, for example, a picture of um, you know, somebody inserting a screwdriver into a toaster oven. And the how question is, how are they holding the screwdriver? Well, left hand, right hand. And that doesn't require any theory of mind. It doesn't require you to think about the intention of the person or what's in the person's head. It's just you know, a, a physical activity. So that does not require a theory of mind. The why question is, why are they using a screwdriver in the toaster oven? And the answer might be it's broken or they're trying to get the toast out or something like that. That requires mentalizing. It requires to think about the person's intention, you know, um, why are they motivated to do things in that way. And so if you show people a series of why questions and a series of how questions and you ask which areas of the brain are differentially active when they're, they're figuring out why versus how – you get a nice clear map of what's called this mentalizing network. And um, a few studies have linked that to game theory so that people who are doing more strategic thinking, like picking a lower number in the 0 to 100 game, or presumably other games, or, or people who say, well, there was no movie review, that's probably bad news, because I, you know, I think the studios know if it's good or not, and if it's bad, they don't show it to critics. So they're making a strategic inference about the knowledge that, that another mind has, in this case, the studio. And so the, there's some evidence that more activity in this mentalizing region is associated with um, more strategic thinking in terms of these level K steps. As some of your listeners, again, will know, uh, one of the reasons people became very interested in this uh, mentalizing circuit is um, that children who are autistic tend to be slower to get the right answer in the false belief tasks. And that, you know, the idea is that part of autism is that not necessarily a full inability, but a kind of weakness or what the clinicians call a deficit in the ability to think that other people know things or think things that are different than what you know. So the, the weak theory of mind is thought to be associated with autism. That's is somewhat debated because these things are never quite that simple. But the, the first you know couple of decades of research, I think, are pretty solid about the existence of, of theory of mind and mentalizing and where it seems to be in the brain. And some of the medical questions about autism are a little more up in the air. You mentioned chimpanzees. Tell me a little bit about the strategic differences between human and chimpanzee brains, and are we smarter than chimps? So we've done a little bit of work on that. And um, first, it's, it's once you, anytime you work with animals, and the same thing with children, actually, it's harder to make very solid conclusions because you know, we can't ask the chimpanzees questions, and we're never absolutely sure that they understand what we're trying to do. And also, the chimpanzees are usually motivated to do experiments by little cubes of, of food. So if they're just not hungry, they're going to look like they're dumb. <laughs> but it's not that they're dumb, it's that they're not competing for rewards. So subject to that caveat, my collaborator, Tetsuro Matsuzawa, who works in um, Japan, has a theory of what he calls the cognitive trade-off hypothesis. And the idea is a, kind of a very simple one evolutionarily, which is in the chimpanzees' natural ecology, it's really important for them to be able to play hide-and-seek games and to keep track of predators and prey, and to do you know certain kinds of rudimentary strategic thinking. Uh, so, for example, um, 
if a bunch of fruit falls from a tree, it's really helpful if they can keep track of where the different pieces of fruit might have gone and where they are. And that takes a certain kind of working memory, right? Instead of a string of digits like we talked about earlier, one, six, seven, the working memory that the chimps need is spatial working memory. You know, where did all this stuff go? And if they can do that better than other chimps, they can run and get food more quickly. So um, he has some evidence that, especially with training, the chimpanzees are really good at spatial working memory. And the way he does it experimentally is to show them a bunch of numbers on a screen, like one, four, three, two, six, in different places of the computer screen for 200 milliseconds, which is very quick. You can just barely see the number. And then the numbers disappear and they're replaced by black blocks. And in order to get a food reward, the chimp has to press the black blocks, which correspond to the numbers in order. So, so wherever the digit one was originally, he has to press that box first. And then if the next digit was two in order, he has to press that. And if the next was a four, he has to press that. And you can see on the, their website at the Primate Research Institute called PRI, you can see some videos of this. And um, the highly trained chimps who do this thousands and thousands of times, they get really good at it, are really good. They're really good with 200 milliseconds exposure and a lot of training with five or six digits in a sequence, they can get about 80 or 90% correct. And people actually really aren't as good, although it's a little controversial because it's, it's hard to get human beings to do it for 10,000 trials. Uh, you know, it, so there's very few cases where people have been as trained as the chimpanzees. Anyway, so that motivated the idea that maybe the chimps are actually just really good, better than us, at keeping track of sequences of information that resemble, you know, something like fruits falling in the forest that's useful for them in their adaptation. And by the way, the cognitive trade-off part comes in in the following way. So the chimps are basically kind of like kids up until age two or three. And so a lot of the play they do among the, the chimps playing with chimps, kids with kids, is you know, play that's that's kind of like practicing for strategic interactions or games that probably had some adaptive value as they were growing up. So they play hide and seek, or um, the chimps are often status dominance is very important for them. So they'll kind of wrestle and sort of like play fight, you know, to see who's stronger. And the difference in humans is once children start to talk, a lot of their mental attention and probably brain matter is now silly devoted to this amazing tool, which is called language. And also, children will shift over at age two or three or four to what's called um, group play. You know, so kids who are little will just play by themselves. Like you get a bunch of kids in a room and they're all sitting playing completely independently, like little assembly line workers. When they start to talk, then they can start to play much more interesting games that involve talking to one another and um, bluffing and things like that. But the chimps never advance to that next stage. So in a way, they get a lot more practice in their playtime in games that may require a certain kind of working memory, like hide-and-seek. Where did that person run off to? I'm going to go look for them there. Or where did somebody hide last time? I'm going to switch to a different location so that they'll, they'll go to the old location and not the new. And so Matz's always hypothesis is that the chimps get this kind of endless childhood of practice in games that involve working memory and hide-and-seek. And so we actually did some experiments with chimpanzees where they don't actually play hide and seek, but they, they, they see a little computer screen. It's basically an iPad with Gorilla Glass or chimpanzee glass, so they can smash it. And a little light comes up and they either press on the left or the right. And there are two chimpanzees actually next to each other in a glass cubicle. Um, and we, for different various reasons, we used um, mother and sibling pairs. So it's like a mother and a, a little son and mother and little son and one mother and a little girl, um, chimpanzees. And one of the chimpanzees is a hider, which means 
they want to pick left when the other person picks right. And so they, they both see two separate screens and they're picking at the same time. And so the hider gets a food reward if they mismatch. If I hide, I pick left, you pick right hot. It's as if you didn't catch me on the computer screen. The seeker gets a food reward if they match. You know, so if they both choose left, food reward for the seeker. The hider gets nothing. And when they play this game hundreds and hundreds of times for food, two things happen, which are interesting. One is that their choices, they do a better, they seem to do a better job of keeping track of what the other chimpanzee has done in the past and then responding to that. So if you're a seeker and you see the other guy has picked left, 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 they switch to left more quickly. They're kind of learning and they're recognizing patterns. And the other thing is that when you plot the percentage of times they can choose left and right, remember from rock, paper, scissors, in these games, if you alter how much food you get for different combinations, like if I'm a seeker and I choose left and you choose left, ha, now I get three apple cubes. If I choose right and you choose right, I still get food, but I only get one apple cube. If you move around how much from these different configurations of choices, you can change the mathematical predictions of the Nash equilibrium game theory. And it turns out that if you make a graph, the, the chimpanzees as a group, if you average across the six different chimps, there's three pairs, you know, one playing hide or one playing the seeker, the chimpanzees are incredibly close to theory. I mean, I've... I claim, I, I know a lot about this, but maybe not everything. I'm sure not everything, and there's always new studies coming along. But I've said this to several game theory audiences, and no one has, has ever said, I found an interesting exception to your, your claim, that the chimpanzees as a group of just the six chimps come about as close to these predictions of the natural equilibrium, the balance of left and right play, as, as any group we've ever seen. And it might be just a fluke because there's only six. It might be that they're trained a lot. They do this for hundreds of times and they're very motivated. They do it when they're a little bit hungry, so they're motivated to eat. But Or maybe they have this special skill. So it, it may be that the chimps are actually, you know, a even a little bit better than us at this special type of game that involves hiding and seeking and, most importantly, you know, keeping track of what your opponent has done the last few times. So in that study, the uh, you had some human groups also sort of either compete yes. against them or... Uh, or just measured their activity, and they were further away from the the game theoretical Nash equilibrium than the chimps. That's correct. And in fact, in, for robustness, we we did it with a group of, of people in Japan, and they, they actually use using the exact same image. So they use the same type of iPad and pressing. So it's not that we're, you know, that we give them instructions that are a little bit different. The chimps, we don't really tell them anything verbally. They just have to learn it by trial and error. But we also had a group of African people who worked at a chimpanzee reserve in West Africa. And the difference with them was, well, first we had, we didn't use the computers there. We didn't have them, but we had them play with kind of bottle caps and and they could play with the bottle cap up or down. And that represented kind of like left or right. And one of them wanted to match the other person's bottle cap and one of them wanted to mismatch. And the advantage of Africa was people are poor, and so we could pay them uh, what was a typical amount of money for Americans, but in terms of purchasing power, it's a lot of money. So sometimes with these experiments, we always we would prefer that whoever's participating experiment is motivated by money so that they're paying attention and they continue to think. And so the Africans made the equivalent of, in, a, in half an hour or 45 minutes, of playing a couple of hundred times with each other, they made the equivalent in U.S. purchasing power, maybe $150. So that, you know, and, and you can tell by watching them and, you know, they were kind of really into this. This is sort of pretty important. But even then, their patterns and their data looked very much like the Japanese people, even though the literacy levels are different and they're from two different continents and their genetic material is probably a little bit different. Um, and their incentives were quite different. But if you plot the human groups, the two human groups 
Japanese and Africans look quite similar. And then the chimps are just off in this, you know, land of their own smack, you know, within 1% of where the, the mathematical prediction says they should be. So for listeners who want to dig into uh, not only kind of that, but just game theory more generally, and some of the things we've talked about today, what resources would you recommend that they check out books, websites, et cetera? I think one that's um, sometimes used as an undergraduate text, so it's not too technical, and it's well-written, is by uh, Avinash Dixit, D-I-X-I-T. Uh, he has he actually has a book um, with Barry Nailbuff, so I'll just give you his last name because it's easier to spell. And remember, it's Avinash Dixit, D-I-X-I-T. So he actually wrote a kind of popular book, and he also has a textbook, which is... Um, often used to teach uh, undergraduates and kind of not, you can teach game theory as you might imagine, and it's sometimes taught this way in economics and even computer science and engineering in an extremely mathematical way. But it's, you know, it's really a sort of storytelling about human behavior with some mathematical structure on it. So the Dixit book with Nailbuff is kind of a chatty, funny introduction with lots of examples. And he has another book, I believe it's with Skeeth, S-K-E-A-T-H. Um, that's more like a textbook you would use in a class, but not too mathematical. There are lots of very mathematical books, one by Roger Meyerson, who's a Nobel laureate. And uh, and I have a book called Behavioral Game Theory, which, again, is, is not meant for a popular audience, but a lot of people have read it and told me they like parts of it. And uh, it's called Behavioral Game Theory. And that's aimed at, say, advanced undergrads who know a little bit about game theory, but they're mostly just interested in, you know, how do people and sometimes children or chimpanzees, you know, actually play these games and other principles like this level K thinking besides equilibrium thinking, you know, what are the different kinds of mathematical ways we approach this? And so there, you know, I hope my book, unfortunately, is it's not a trade book. It's a university press book. So it's not pretty cheap. Um, but there probably are used copies on, on Amazon that are not as highly priced as textbooks usually are. And again, it's not it's not written. I didn't make a big effort like with unlike with Dixon's books to reach a big audience. But I hope at least some of your listeners who are um, willing to put up a little bit more math would find it interesting. Uh, anyway, there are a bunch of books, although there isn't unlike um, Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, there hasn't been a a really great, you know, fun game theory book written with lots of cool stories. Maybe I'll write one someday or, or uh, other, somebody else will. But for so far, Avinash Dixit's book, I think, is the best one. And what is one piece of homework that you would give listeners? Well, I think, you know, Abraham Lincoln, I think, said, think is twice as much about the other fellow as about yourself. And so the the usual kind of mistake people make is to think about what they can get out of something and not to sufficiently think, why is, what is, what motivates the other person? You know, what are they likely to do? If I, you know, if I'm very tough in negotiation, will they walk away? Yes or no. If I'm really easy in a negotiation, will something good happen? And so, um, the level zero players that we're talking about by definition are not doing anything strategically thinking. They're, they're not saying, why is somebody doing this? Uh, what is their motive? What do, what do they know that I don't know? And so often a little bit of analysis like that, it goes a pretty long way. Where can people find you online? Uh, on Twitter, it's my Twitter is CF Camerer, C-F-C-A-M-E-R-E-R. And um, I do have a website, although it's not up to date particularly recently. And I, I haven't written, um, I'm on Facebook, but I don't post very regularly. Uh, Twitter, I, I usually comment on certain things. And I also try to, if I come across a recent research paper, sometimes they're quite technical and sometimes they're more, you know, there's a fun, really instant, interesting takeaway. I'll kind of use it to advertise sometimes my own research and other papers, I think, that people who are kind of interested in science at the level of your listeners uh, might find fun to read. 
Well, Colin, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for being on The Science of Success. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I would absolutely love to hear from you. I read and respond to every single email that I get from listeners. My email address is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. Don't hesitate to shoot me an email. Say what's up. Say hello. Tell me what you think about the podcast. I would love to hear from you. Remember, the greatest compliment that you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. It's unbelievable. Every single review Every single review makes a huge impact in the iTunes algorithm. So if you've been listening for weeks, if you've been loving the show, please leave us that review on iTunes. And if you remember, Kate Squires left us a review last week. She won a $100 Amazon gift card because she did that. So if you want to be entered to win that gift card, all you have to do is to text the word SMARTER to the number 44222, and you'll get 10 extra entries if you leave us a positive review on iTunes and send me an email of it. Thanks again, and we will see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.